Welcome to another episode of The Corner Booth, the official podcast of RestaurantOwner.com and Restaurant Startup and Growth Magazine. Today, the restaurant industry is changing faster than ever. Learn from successful independent restaurant operators and other industry leaders as they share best practices that will help you engage your team, delight your guests, and grow your business. Here are your hosts, Barry Schuster and Chris Tripoli. And welcome everyone to another episode of Corner Booth with Chris and Barry. I'm Chris Tripoli. And I'm Barry Schuster, editor of Restaurant Startup and Growth Magazine. And today we've got a special guest, somebody who has been working with hospitality clients throughout the nation for years, somebody who specializes in design. We're going to get a good take today on how design impacts more than color schemes, more than decor, but impacts on actual operations. So take some notes. Here we go. Let's say hello to Jen Braverman of Jin Design. Welcome. Hi, how are you? Welcome to Corner Booth. Thank you. Glad to be here with esteemed professionals such as yourselves. Well, maybe you could tell us a little bit about how you got started. We know you as interior design specialists. We also know you as a group that has done some very, very interesting projects and specializes in restaurant design. So maybe you tell us just how you got started. Yeah, I mean, I was doing interior design for HGTV for a little while. I'd gotten put on a show as a designer by a friend of mine, and it was my first kind of foray into very specific interior design. I had done set design prior to that, so it was kind of a natural segue. But once I did a few of these projects on the show, it really just clicked, and I knew This was where my special strengths were in interior design. And then I got my first restaurant project totally by accident. I was working in a store here in Houston called New Living that's not here anymore, but they sold products, building supplies and finishes that were non-toxic and locally made and such. And a woman came up to me and I was helping her pick a floor and she randomly asked me if I designed her restaurant in New Orleans. And I said, sure. So that kind of kicked it all off. And shortly after that, I had the opportunity to help one of Houston's James Beard darlings, Justin Yu, do his first restaurant here in Houston, was Oxheart. And then after that, it just really started rolling. And I'm not even sure how many restaurants I've done at this point. It's easily somewhere between 75 and 100 and of all different sizes, budgets, cuisines, different types of chefs or operators, first timers, people who've done many. It's been really interesting, always something new and always something challenging and exciting. So yeah, never a dull moment in this industry for sure. So Jen, in helping these folks, I imagine their level of sophistication in everything is all over the board. And are there times when you're sitting down with independent operators, and that's our market, as you understand, our audience, you say, you know, I'm not sure your ideas are really on point. Do you ever have to talk people out of concepts and get them in a direction that you think is actually going to work? All the time. Possibly every project. I mean, <laughs> sometimes people don't want to hear it. They think they know what they are doing and, and you know, sometimes they do. But we come with, I guess, such a finely tuned radar into all the little details that can mess something up at the end of the day. So when we sit down with clients, whether it's from, you know, an operations or a schematic or a design concept, you know, we love to challenge them. I love to, but I have no problem challenging people because I want them to be successful. So 
if I have to tell them, hey, this look and feel, you know, 20 people in town are doing this right now. This isn't unique. Or, you know, this type of arch is so passe or don't do that fixture. Or do you really want your bar here? That's, you know, probably not going to make for the best environment. It's just there are millions of things to consider when designing a restaurant from both kind of the schematic and then operational and aesthetic point of view. And we really don't just stop with the aesthetics. It's important to us that it makes sense, you know, down to the niche, the proper size niche for the paper towels in the bathroom or what have you. So to that end, we've developed a really robust programming questionnaire that takes about two hours to run through and that we do with every client. And it's amazing. Even people who've owned restaurants and who've done restaurants before are still always kind of stumped by some of the questions. And they're not sure why we have to talk about it at the beginning. And I always tell them, you don't have to answer it right now, but you have to start thinking about it because you have to answer it at some point. And it's great. It's a lot of fun and you really get to know the client going through it. And I think they come away with something really valuable that sets them up for success. So over the last decade, the thing just keeps growing. Every project we add more, like more questions, more points. So it's a great tool. I'd like to spend a little more time on that. That's very interesting. So you and your team actually put together this outline questionnaire that you want all clients to go through on the projects. Maybe you could give us a couple of examples of what even the established person might be surprised at, because I'm sure some of the things on the questionnaire regarding size, flow, type of menu, customer, price range, they're probably expecting. But what are some of the things that help you with designing the concept that they're not expecting? Um. I mean, there's some, there's some funny questions that, you know, um, like we'll say, well, how many bartenders do you want to have, you know, minimum, maximum? And you're like, why do you need to know that? And we're like, well, I mean, you know, how many wells are you going to need? And, you know, how much space is it going to take? And um, it just, it, it's funny because even if we don't specifically need to know it, we, we just, it helps, it helps build the whole picture. Um, you know, we'll ask them like, what type of foot rail they want on their bar, you know, do they care what the bar top material is made of? And, you know, people have very strong opinions. No, no metal bar top, no concrete bar top, no marble bar top. Like the answers are so diverse. Um, You never know what someone's going to say. And um, yeah, some of the other ones that I think, you know, take people by surprise are like, um, you know, what, what do you have? (laughs) Do you have a preference on acoustical treatment? You know, um, and some people who have no idea what we're talking about and others say, oh, yeah, I hate that spray acoustics, you know, foam. It looks terrible. I, I only want panels or, you know, so those answers range as well. Um, we talk about like the host stand. Does it need mints? Does it need toothpicks? You know, how big does it need to be? Like, are people getting text messages when they're when they're getting seated? Are they getting paged? You know, where does the pager system get placed um will you serve drinks in the waiting area uh will you have trays you know because you have to place for trays and, and high chairs and booster seats and so it just goes on and on i mean even like the one thing people i think usually get hung up on is like when we ask like if they have a floor mat preference for the walk-on mat and they and, and then we start going through the different types of walk-on mats you can have and if you want the embedded you know cocoa mat kind you have to have a leave out in your floor when you're designing and so it's just, you know, the, the details that um, you have to get into to make sure everything ends up the way you want it to end up. It's pretty, uh, it's pretty intricate, but, but it, it's great conversation. <laughs> More than a few of the uh, operators Chris and I have talked to over the last 18, 
24 months doing this, um, particularly some of the younger operators, very savvy. Uh, they have uh, their concept, they believe they want to be multi-unit, and they are, and they, they're going out and they're finding, uh, you know, actually good deals on, on real estate in locations where they want to be, but you're talking about one unit of the restaurant, a whole different floor plan because of just happened, just happens to be what they um, were able to get in that that location, and and then one of the questions I'll ask, well, you know, how do you create some kind of consistency from one unit to the next so that I know when I come to this restaurant, I'm still ambience and design wise, I'm in this, I'm in really the same concept, and they'll say, well, we have the same artwork and the uniforms are the same, et cetera, et cetera. But do you run into that yourself? And, and what are the key elements that can tie together a concept, even if the, the square footage and the floor plans are quite a bit different? Um, yeah, that's a, a, it's a great question. I mean, we, we touch on branding for certain clients. We're not a branding agency and we don't offer it outright, but if someone's using us for interiors and they need branding work done, we'll do that in-house for them to, to make sure everything is seamless. Um, and that's a big part of it. Um, coming up with, you know, what their, what's their trade dress, what's their, um, brand aesthetic, um, you know, what, what's their kind of materials palette must haves and then the, the, the alternates. And, um, you know, if it's, if it's set out, if, if they're set out to create a multi-unit concept from the beginning, you know, that's something that we consider at a much more robust level, but quite often we've, you know, gone back with clients and done their second or third and, um, you know, just kind of created the, you know, the, the, design as we went through the process um and then we've had clients who on their second or third say you know what i just want to i want to change it all up this time it's still you know x restaurant but i'm noticing trends i feel like you know my old places are you know a little behind the curve let's you know let's let's shake it up and do something new so it it, it is interesting um when people feel that way and and change their aesthetic you know in the middle of of a of a development run or whatever you want to call it. But um, uh, yeah, otherwise it really is just kind of, um, you know, we feel it out pretty organically, you know, based on the space um, and try to, it, there's, there's a difference between multiple units and chains. And I think, you know, chains is like the bad word these days, but, but, you know, multi-unit concepts are, are cool and, you know, uh, revenue producing. So, um, it, it, it's just, it's a case by case thing, but yeah, there, it, it's important to pay attention up front. If you know, there are going to be multiple units and do your best to define, you know, what needs to stay and what can go because, um, then you, then you just have less to worry about later on. Chris, remember a few, uh, it's been a while. You were showing me around some concepts in Houston. You took me to this gelato place and it was just so well put together. And I told the guy, well, this looks, looks like it could be a, a national franchise. And he got really upset and concerned because he thought that I uh, was suggesting this place look too done and um, to use a cosmetic surgery expression. So Jen, you know, I mean, I understand with a lot of independent operators, they want to have something that that tells the world that they are an independent operator, not someone who's vying to have 500 units. 
Um, this guy may be an outlier, but is that a concern for some of your clients? And and there are things that you do to make it look like it has a little bit of character rather than just just too done, if that makes sense. It makes total sense. And, you know, I don't I think one thing about us is we don't like I'm kind of going to say sidestep here, but we don't have like a look ourselves. We're not that firm. You go to for a certain look because we don't feel like it's about us, particularly when it comes to restaurants. You know, it's the looks really specific to the client. And then taking that a step further, um, also, you know, different areas of Houston being the sprawling metropolis that it is, you know, have different personalities. And so if somebody has a unit in, let's say, West U, for example, versus maybe Southwest Houston, they might, you know, want to have a different aesthetic or, or they might, you know, want to make the environment more approachable or resonate more with, with the local residents than, you know, that might be more important to them than having a consistent look, you know, within, within both concepts. So um, there is, you know, obviously continuity and consistency and brand recognition is, is important, but there are quite a few ways to kind of work that out. And, um, you know, more people, more independent operators now, I think, are opening multiple concepts that aren't, you know, under the same brand. You know, they, they, they belong to them, but they're not... Um, uh, you know, it's not that it's not repeating the same concept. So we, we're seeing that a lot. So with repeat clients that are that are doing different things. I think you made a great point when you were talking earlier about the difference between multi-unit and chain, or the difference between, say, you know, multi-concept management groups. You know, and again, chain. And and I think that that is a goal of independence is to grow their brand. I just think it's wonderful now that the industry sees you can create value in your brand without having to have everything be cookie cutter. And uh, it took us a while to learn that, quite frankly, because, you know, uh, it wasn't too long ago we would work with clients and they would say, we're ready for growth, but we have to make sure that we have this size. We have to make sure that we have these sites. We have to make sure that we can get this much signage. We have to make sure we have this color trim. You know, um, But you're not finding that anymore now, are you? When people say, I'm ready to grow, um, and they're not that specific on those kinds of uh, details. What are the kinds of details that they are telling you that they might be needing? Um, well, so for... For operators who have multiple concepts, you know, um, it's it's kind of more important that the concepts don't look alike, um, so that they can establish their uniqueness um, and 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 reinforce the fact that even though they're owned by the same group or operator, that they're actually you know totally different, um, totally. You know, different DNA. Um, so that that's you know one one part of it. And then when people are doing multiple concepts, I mean, you know, the signage is is one of those things that really can just on its own create that sense of connection. Um, so their exterior, their signage, their facade, and then you know, interiors. Maybe they're repeating. Um, an element or two, a finisher to um, maybe it's a certain dining chair table that they love, you know, it kind of, it kind of depends on, on how strictly they want to adhere. So yeah, it's, I mean, 
it's all over the place. <laughs> I've got to imagine, and I think you actually even suggested it, um, so that validates that, but you've got operators who want makeovers. Um, they've been in business for a while and now they're concerned, maybe not, they're maybe not as relevant as they were to their clientele that was visiting two decades ago. Um, is that a, a good part of your business? And, and, you know, how do you make the changes, you know, without throwing the baby out with the bathwater? Um, I have kind of an innate appreciation for um, kind of patina and, and, and authenticity and um, things that have, you know, worn well over time. And I think something I do really well is blend the old and the new in a way that's not jarring. We're working on a, on a concept right now in Montrose that's been around forever and has, you know, cult status and a very loyal following, but the owner feels that it needs a facelift. There's a lot, lot coming up in Montrose, you know, new, new shiny new buildings and, and, and high end developments. And, um, and they, they want to, you know, they want to keep up understandably. Um, but at the same time, I, I want to be as cognizant and, and aware as possible of, you know, not jarring the existing clientele, not, not, you know, shaking them up. They definitely come there and have come there for so long that, you know, you want to make sure they, they still feel like they're in the same place and it's the same food and it's the same experience while maybe enjoying, you know, refreshed paint and lighting and art and, and maybe more comfortable furniture. So I, it's, it's, there's a balance and, um, you know, it, that's, that's part of just where having a design aesthetic comes in is, is being able to justify what, what you keep and what you change and, and keep an eye on it and, and really, I don't know, um, walk the line <laughs> between uh, re refreshing and completely refinishing. That's it. Refreshing versus re, you know, doing. Um, and I would think that there's a process, obviously, that you follow in order to uh, go through and, uh, you know, judge the key components that you can keep that wear well and what you can work around. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, there, there are things that are worn out and they have to be replaced. And, you know, the question is, do you do the same thing with a new thing or do you do a completely new thing? How about for the listeners who are starting up, <clears throat> um, what's the process that they should prepare themselves for? And, and I'll, and I'll tell you what, I think it's confusing to some, and then maybe you can give us some clarity. Some people that maybe are knowledgeable of the industry, they're very excited, they have an idea and it's time to step out on their own. So what we will hear them say is, well, uh, I can't really hire you know, my design team you know, because I haven't um, found my site or I'm not totally funded. Yet what they need is some design advisement in order to get their presentation deck done, in order to get their initial estimates done so that they can get the right site, so that they can get funded. So is there a process where they should do, I don't know, maybe there's a better term for it, but it's like design a little bit where they bring somebody in to help them, concept development, get the idea. Then they go back to that team and say, now I need the full thing, make it reality. Um, or, or does that 
not work? Um, you can never, ever bring a design team in soon enough. I mean, it's, it, it's, it's interesting because, you know, like you said, people do think that, you know, they're not ready yet, but there's so much that we assist with, you know, on the, in the preliminary phase, I've walked sites with potential clients and talk to them in or out of a certain site based on different things. Um, we see, we see, we can foresee many issues that maybe somebody who hasn't hasn't done this before hasn't done it as much. You know, may not see um, just just in walking the site. You know, what's that massive fire riser in the corner, or you know, how's that going to impact your your uh, egress? And um, or, or yeah, it's, it's always something like that. It's always something that that's like part of the building that, that maybe they don't notice and, and it's going to be a big problem. Um, but yeah, we, we do, um, we do quite a lot of, a lot of site walks. Um, we also offer kind of, again, that preliminary programming that gets people thinking, you know, if this, maybe this is the right site, maybe it's not. Um, and then, yeah, a lot of times, um, you know, if it's, if it's a prime location, they need a preliminary rendering for right. the landlord or for or for fundraising um so you know we're available to do as much or as little as somebody needs but it really it's like you know a stitch in time saves nine if you can get you know a little of this insight and advice up front you may save a lot of hassle later on so we we do encourage people to just at least give us a call when they're thinking about where to go and then and also i mean i'm I'm, I'm in every development in town. I'm a great resource for what's available on the market because uh, we're, we're in it. So it's, that's fun for me. I don't get a commission, but I enjoy it. <laughs> I, I imagine um, you've taught people a few things about the ADA architectural guidelines uh, along the way. Oh yeah. I mean, it's, we were just having a conversation yesterday with some clients who had an existing restaurant and an ADA inspector came in months after they opened and um, made them move some soap dispensers down one inch, um, which they were placed where they were placed because of, you know, kind of a, a chair rail and, um, and the inspector, you know, made them move it down one inch. So it's, it, you know, little things like that and just, being very, very strict about um, following ADA requirements is really important. It's important to me personally because I have quite a few friends, unfortunately, that are in chairs and um, I see their struggle when they go out and not having proper access and, and not being able to be with their group or, or you know, be it's dehumanizing when you can't order from a bar and, and be seen by the bartender. So it, it's a struggle because, you know, this the ADA portion of the bar ends up getting piled up with menus and silverware stacks and such because it's kind of this extra space. But, um, you know, it's a, I always tell people like you're in the hospitality industry and, and hospitality is about, you know, making everyone feel welcome, whether it's your, you know, your guests in chairs, your, your blind guests, you know, and anyone who comes through your door should feel welcome. And so it's, it's a struggle because I get that it's, it's a lot of work on, on both ends to, to get it right. But um, Texas does have very uh, robust requirements that are um, 
are hard to get around, fortunately. <laughs> and so you just kind of have to do it. And, um, you know, in the end, everyone wins. So it's not like we have to fight with people about it. We have to remind them that it, it's a pain, but it's a pain for a reason. You work in other prom, in other areas. Um, and, uh, and when you do work in other, say, states, uh, how do you adjust uh, to, you know, to, to adjust your approach to uh, that particular market and the codes there? Um, we always work with architects of record. And, you know, if, if, it's, a, if it's an out-of-state project, we'll work with a, a local architect. So we, um, we, we have that covered generally. That's uh, something that we don't have, to, don't have to do too much research on. Thankfully, we've got experts involved. Makes sense. I, I don't know about your market. In our market, um, with the uh, current pandemic, even operators who are highly motivated to, to do some work, we're having struggles with um, building supplies, um, the supply chain, and also with being able to find um, uh, skilled tradesmen and, and people to do the work. Um, are you experiencing that in, in, in your region um, at all? And if so, um, how is that affecting the way things are being approached right now? Um, yes, to all of those things. There are supply chain issues. There are tradesmen shortages. There are labor shortages. You know, you get the restaurant all finally finished and ready to open and then you don't have staff. Um, that's that's possibly the, the biggest problem right now, um, more so than anything else we've come up against. Um, we are, you know, fortunate to be in a city like Houston where we have almost endless resources. And if something's, you know, out of stock, we can and do reselect. If something has a crazy long lead time, we, you know, <laughs> find something else. It's, you know, everyone's just rolling with it. And I think you know, operators to, to landlords, to developers, you know, everyone's just having to be more understanding because it's affecting everybody equally. And so, you know, if, if, if the supply chain issue has impacted your opening date, you know, um, I think people are having a little more luck than, than they used to in getting extensions or, or some type of um, forgiveness or, or what have you. So um, yeah, it's, it's, it's rough, but knock on wood, we haven't had anything really major um, happen in the in the build out phases. I mean, we've had some some shipment delays, that's for sure. Um, and we're, you know, we're navigating this new like spot market on on freight. We do um, custom furnishings. Uh, the there are actually two companies, um, Gin Design Group and then uh, GDG Enterprises Worldwide. Jewel for short, and uh, Jewel procure, procures and, and provides custom furnishings for our clients, and um, that's really the side that's that's seeing um, the the major changes. Uh, freight has gone up five hundred percent in the last year on the on the spot market for booking containers, and um, so you know we've pivoted and you know we're pre-booking as much as possible. We're you know working with different brokers, and it's been a lot of behind the scenes work, but we're doing everything we can to, you know, not have to pass that on and, and I mean, not change, change estimates and, and what the initial ideas are that things are going to cost because, you know, we know it's not like more money is just going to appear 
but um yeah it's pretty wild i it's it's unprecedented (laughs) all i can say uh, do you find though that I mean, even even without the recent curveball uh, because of the pandemic, uh, do, do you feel that even say before that time, is there a pretty good understanding from clients as to time um, time it takes for things like design permits, construction, opening, or do you really have to do a lot of education on timeline? It, it's amazing how quickly people think they can get a restaurant built and open. Um, and if I had never done it before, I would absolutely feel the same way. I mean, how hard could it be? Just, you know, you're picking some finishes and tell them where to put the lighting and, uh, you know, buy, buy some chairs and tables and call it a day. So it is, um, you know, it sounds so simple and, you know, after people have done it and they've seen, you know, the rounds of revisions, all the documentation, you know, all the intricate detailing that goes into it and the specifying and re-specifying of of finishes if something's not available or um, what have you, price gets priced out. So um, it's, it's, interesting to watch people watch us go through the process and, and the light bulbs to kind of slowly come along like, oh, that's why it's going to take so long. And, and their second or third time, you know, nobody thinks it's, it's going to take, you know, two months. <laughs> you, and even, even little simple remodels, you know, it, it, they look simple and, and sometimes they are. I mean, we've, we've done some here and there, we've, we have done some crazy turnarounds on remodels, um, you know, 30 to 60 days. It is not the norm, but uh, it, it can happen. But it really has a lot to do with the condition of the space and the availability of the GC and materials. So, um, you know, it's, 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 again, it's across the board and you're really never sure to dive in and kind of get into the infrastructure. And the inspectors, I guess, can make life interesting too, huh? Yeah, for for the GCs. I mean, we <laughs> fortunately uh, aren't really around at that at that part of it. But yeah, the the GCs definitely they love inspection days. Everyone's favorite day. When do you step back? I mean, I I guess part of my thinking was that. Um, once you got involved in a project, you were doing some hand-holding really until it was done, but it, it sounds like there's a certain point where you just turn everything over to the con- general contractor and, and you know, and, and say, my, my work is done here. Yeah, I mean, that's the beauty of, of doing thorough selections and documentations and working with a GC who understands the importance of submittals and um, uh, providing shop drawings and, you know, working with the, the preferred subs. Um, it really keeps us out of the field, which keeps our, our, our fee down during construction administration. We, we really like to, you know, um, offer a design fee through the design phase, which is, you know, through the construction documents. And then we are available for a certain amount of hours during construction to review, you know, the submittals and to do the on-site walks at periodic points, but um, no one wants to pay a design team to live on site during construction and to, to be that engaged. I mean, your work should be done before they begin building so that everything gets done properly. And um, so that's that's really the goal. It's not to say we're not available. It's just, we wanna be as 
um, efficient with everyone's time and money as, as we can. So, um, so yeah, we, we come out to site if there's a problem or if we need to put eyes on something or something's changed. Um, but yeah, when it, by the time it gets to inspections, that's definitely fortunately off our plate. And I guess, and I guess it depends an awful lot too on the knowledge of and the involvement of the client, uh, the operator through this, because I could see where it'd get more difficult in the field if the client wasn't uh, aware or as involved um, or uh, as understanding of what he or she were gonna get, then you'll get these phone calls uh, that, I, that it looked this way on paper, but I need to have you out here because I don't think I've got enough room here, or I don't think that is supposed to be that high, or wasn't I supposed to have more windows, or um, or do you get issues like that where it, it was really perhaps the client and now we've got change orders because they're seeing things in reality that they didn't necessarily understand on paper, and um, and it's bringing you out to do more work in the field. There will be small changes once they see you know something come together, but we almost always provide a fully rendered 3D model of the space um, for them to review and approve. So there, there aren't that many surprises, really. I mean, they've seen it all. It's all been documented in great detail. It's been rendered in 3D, real, photorealistic renderings. You know, there's there's not a lot um, left to chance. And, and yeah, every now and then if there is a change, uh, say they want to add, you know, they want to add more tables, we need to add a few more lights or, or this niche needs to be larger because I just want it to look different. You know, little things like that for sure come up. But um, the, the change, you know, the change order thing, that kind of depends on the GC and how, how rigid they are with their change order process. For us, we usually have, you know, a design retainer that, you know, we just work off of for the little minor changes like that that come along. So it's not really a big deal to, to make a few modifications in the field. You know, if you want to change something major, then yeah, we'll sit down and talk about it. But, um, you know, that's kind of the nature of it. Things like that come up and just roll with it. You know, Barry, I think that 3D modeling probably helps a lot. I'm not so sure if that's a pretty standard thing for, uh, you know, a lot of people, but I, I would think that that does help uh, educate people if they're able to work with you and not only then get the detailed specs written, the plans done, but to see it dimensionally helps them maybe understand size, flow, height better, and then they're not going to maybe stumble as much when they get away from you. That's my guess. I, I agree. I, I mean, it, it, it almost makes so much sense. I don't think I'd, I'd want to go forward without one for a couple of reasons. One, it's not easy to conceptualize these things in two dimensions. And secondly, a restaurant's a dynamic space. And when you see the 3D model, in my mind, um, you uh, you kind of can, as you said, you can, you can imagine how the flow goes. You can imagine the uh, just the whole vibe uh, of the guest experience, and and on that note, um, Jen, um, I was involved in a, in a in a on a team for a fairly large construction project, and in this case, when we got to the point where we had decided what this thing was going to look like, and this was a commercial space or university space, the architects brought in. Um, 
basically these 3D, you know, virtual reality glasses and walked us through the site. And I thought, this is really cool. And I thought, I wonder if that's something that, you know, for the scale of the projects that you're doing, is, is that something we're going to see open to operators who want to get that 3D uh, visualization um, of their of their uh, project? Yeah, I mean, it it's definitely available. Um, we haven't needed to use it, um, you know, that in depth. We do have designers who are trained in it. Um, most people are more than satisfied with, you know, a, a, a virtual walkthrough in the in the studio on the big screen and um, a video recording of it that they can take home and show people if, if they want that. So it's um, yeah, it's it's available and it's it's accessible. Um, we just haven't really needed it yet. Mm -hmm. So can you give our listeners maybe an overview? I mean, I, I know that part of this answer is going to be it varies wildly uh, depending upon the complexity of the concept and also the client. But if somebody is getting prepared to put their idea now into reality, you know, how long should they be budgeting to fairly work with a professional on concept development? And then how long should it expect to actually get the drawing done, um, go through contract documents, go through, um, you know, uh, permitting, hopefully not too many changes, and then build out? What, what kind of timeline should people actually prepare, uh, you know, to have to understand before they get started doing this? The projects we see are, are so across the board, but I would say the minimum average is six months from signing us to opening. And that is like really tight. Um, and that, you know, it also <laughs> in this time of supply chain issues is uh, a risk because your typical four month build out now is, uh, it's, it, that timeline is pretty stressed. Yeah, so I, it, we love to hear they wanna open in a year. Like we, we just, we love to hear that because it gives us time to be creative and to get the best space plan and, um, and the most unique concept and you know get everyone on board and gives us time to get the details right and to order the right furniture and get that exactly right. You know, all, all of the little elements, you know, they do take time. I mean, we have a, a pretty large team and everyone has their specialization. So we have, you know, the furniture designers that are separate from the space designers so that we can, you know, maximize the efficiency there um, from a timing perspective. But it's still, um, you know, it's if, if you're bringing something new to life, you really, don't want to rush it and and we've had clients go halfway through the design process and then say oh you know i changed my mind i want to i want to go a different direction so you know that's happened before too and and that's fine but you know if you if you have time for that that's fine if you if you don't have time for that then then you're really kind of compromising your end result i feel um and so yeah it's it we we work with what we're given and in the restaurant industry it is never it's just never enough time but um it, you always get it done somehow so it's a it's a loaded question but yeah it depends on the size um and the the, the level of design of the concept i mean if it's a super straightforward like fast casual order at the counter nothing fancy 
that's a very different thing from a you know high end restaurant, a class A building. So there, you know, there's just so many variables. But that range isn't surprising, uh, don't you think, Barry? I mean, I would I would think that uh, six months to a year, and you know, from start to finish, uh, yeah, that that's that sounds perfectly reasonable to me. More towards the year side. <laughs> We've had restaurants take three years. We've, you know, it, it's there. There are circumstances that come up during the course of a build out. And a lot of it has to do with, with on-site conditions and the construction process, you know, more so than the design process that kind of can only take so long, but um, you know, things happen. You just have to be prepared and you really do have to, I think, um, get it straight from, you know, hopefully you, you really trust your broker and you're, you're getting it straight from them on if the building is going to present challenges so that you can prepare for them. Yeah, I'm sure, Chris, we've both seen situations where the operators learned about some design mistakes that were made um, after they opened and it, it caused some headaches, you know, to fix them while they were still trying to operate. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And, and to Jen's last point, too, many times, uh, if there isn't really significant due diligence, there's things that operators are learning about their space or things that maybe they assumed were gonna be provided, but weren't specified that they would be. And now they're finding that, uh oh, I don't have enough say, uh, I don't have enough power in my lease space to, to do what it is I'm wanting to design. So I thought the landlord was providing me power. And then they find that, well, yeah, the landlord was, but it was just the minimum amount that was there for the space because you took the space as is. And the restaurant, of course, is going to be requiring a tremendous amount more electrical power than the whatever it was, maybe jewelry retail store that was there before. And now all of a sudden you're coming to a grinding halt because you've got that kind of an issue. And now the design team is sitting on the sidelines because, uh, you know, you're being, I guess, delayed a little bit because you know they've got to bring a tremendous amount more power or the deal's not going to be able to work. Yeah. Yeah, it, the MEP process really is where the the issues arise uh, much more so than the design. The design issues are usually pretty fixable, but when it's something to do with the MEP, it's it's very challenging because it's costly and time consuming and there's a lot of negotiations that have to take place between the tenant and the landlord. And we see it all the time. And, um, you know, sometimes there's just no way to see it coming, but I personally feel that um, more, I, I don't know, I don't, I don't want to get anyone mad at me, but I, I think that, you know, everyone gets excited and everyone wants to get a deal done. And um, I think quite often some of these important questions aren't, answered before a lease is signed and people just kind of assume that it'll get worked out. And I've seen things that could have been addressed early on before a lease was signed and, and negotiated come back later and be a huge point of contention between, you know, landlords and tenants and um, things that a tenant would never have been able to, to anticipate. You know, we have a tenant who started off with a, a patch of dirt near their patio where they thought uh, some, a, you know, bush or something was going to be planted. And um, turns out, you know, six months later, it's a 12 access 
point manifold that takes up half the space that you know they never knew was going to be there never saw coming and no one mentioned it so it's 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 stuff like that that you know so much fault but due diligence really plays an important part in in preventing those things uh and i and i think brokers really you know they want to get a deal done and and everyone wants to get the deal done at first because they're excited but but i think it's it's important that they're really diving in and asking these these tough questions that may not just be so readily available on the surface i'm glad you made that point i think that's something that's important for the listeners to make note of because too many times we are we're in a hurry we're excited the space is available yay so they're talking to the representative of say the shopping center because that's the name that was taped on the window. And that person answers their questions and gives them some drafts. And before I know it, uh, an attorney does review the standard lease and gives them some you know, advisement on there, but, but without having say maybe um, a, a proper real estate knowledgeable broker represent them, too many times these questions don't get asked. And the operator's in a hurry and uh, they learn later uh, rather than learning through a process. So uh, not only should uh, our listeners make note that, you know, you win when you use professionals for design, uh, but you also win when you seek out those hospitality professionals that that specialize in real estate. They, they know some of these issues and they'll be on your side. It's um, <laughs> the guy whose name is on the window. Um, he's not working for us. He's working for the landlord. And so too many of these things may not get brought up if that's the only one we talk to. Yeah, yeah, it's true. You know, Jim, one of the things that at least been impressed upon me over the last 15 years since I mean, get involved in this stuff um, is how important wow factor is for, for restrooms and not to be sexist, particularly the ladies room, but a lot of operators and consultants, even guys like Chris said, this is a huge deal. Um, and I've seen some pretty, pretty cool executions of restrooms in very modern, um, uh, newer, uh, full-service restaurants. Is this something that's still emphasized heavily in these projects? Do the operators get it, or um, is it something that really might have been overstated a few years ago, 15 years ago? But you know, it, it really isn't as big a deal as 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 I came to believe it is. Um, you know. The, the thing we're hired to do is to create an experience and the entire time you're in that building, you're having an experience and that experience shouldn't stop when you go to the restroom. You should still feel whatever you're feeling and um, experience whatever you've been experiencing in the restroom. And, and, and it's the one place in the restaurant where you're by yourself, uh, usually, I mean, you know, sometimes girls go to the bathroom together, but like you know, typically if you run to the restroom, you're by yourself. And, and so for us, it's the opportunity to do, you know, even an extra level of detail or, or sometimes special moment because you're, you're noticing them because you're by yourself and you have a minute and you're not talking and you're not, you know, socializing. So, you know, it's kind of like a break from the experience, but at the same time, it, it should be, um, it, it shouldn't be a, a, a jarring break. It should be one that you come back even feeling even better about where you are or, or having another, you know, conversation piece to, to, to reference. Um, so yeah, we, we love uh, doing bathrooms, making them unique and bringing in fun details. And 
we're not alone. I mean, you're right. It's definitely a trend and not just throw some white subway tile in there and call it a day. <laughs> so uh, moving a moment to some of the operators that maybe are, are long past concept and, and opening, uh, but they're operating. What, what are the things that operators should be mindful of um, in keeping that experience updated and current? Is there a certain amount of years that you feel they can go before it's time for refreshing, refurbishing, re refurnishing, or is there no like magic amount of time, but is there some other measure that operators maybe should be aware of um, that to help them stay, you know, uh, current with design in their existing restaurant? I love that question because um, we, I guess, we, we try very hard not to design restaurants that are very, very trendy, you know, that are, that are recognizably trendy. Oh, that was designed in, you know, between, oh, I don't know, 2015 and 2020, because that tile or that type of art or whatever it might be, or that slat work, it was, you know, all the rage then. I mean, Pinterest ideas spread like wildfire. So we kind of have a, a no, uh, no, no copying Pinterest rule, which I mean, seems obvious, but it's hard. Um, especially when your clients are sending you Pinterest photos. So, um, but yeah, it's it, so again, because we're trying to make the concept so specific to the client and their, and their, you know, desired experience, we try really hard not to be trendy. I think there's a difference between being on trend and trendy. Um, and, uh, so for us, we, we don't want a space that's going to date itself and, and become, you know, passe, we do want to always have classic elements and, um, you know, something that that's more unique than, than a trend so that you're not so, so recognizably out of the trend or behind, you know, past the trend. Um, but you know, their restaurants take a beating and there's a certain amount of wear and tear that at a point, you know, if you're getting, um, you know, if your furniture's, you know, getting beat up, you know, get it reupholstered, get it clean, you know, if, if, if things are looking dingy, you need to refresh your paint or, you know, the, I think it's really keeping the space fresh. And, um, and then, yeah, I don't know, I, after a, a decade, two decades, I mean, it really depends on how, how trendy the space was to begin with. And also, you know, what the company you're keeping is doing, you know, you might be in a place where you're it and no one cares because you're the best thing going on in that neighborhood. Or you might be in a neighborhood where there's a new concept every 10 minutes and you, you know, feel like you need to stay relevant. So um, I'm not trying to not have definitive answers for any of your questions, but everything is so relative. <laughs> sure. Sure. I, I get it. Yeah. I, did, I, I can see how that would vary a little bit too. And, and I guess it also has a lot to do with uh, volume. I mean, if you're a smaller restaurant, uh, and you're slower and, and um, you're not a fast paced restaurant where, for example, you've got that door opening 400 times a day, you're serving 500 patients, you know, uh, patrons a shift, you're going to obviously have a shorter lifestyle on your, you know, flooring and, and, and chairs and booths than someone who's maybe um, smaller and um, less use 
higher check average, fewer people. And that means things are going to last longer. I like the comment that you made too about how operators just also have to kind of watch their competitive marketplace. Um, because if they really are uh, uh, staying close to their customer profile, they, they're obviously aware of where those customers are when they're not dining with them. And if you're in a very, very competitive marketplace, uh, you know that your customers are out and about and there's all kinds of new cool things that they want to be seeing, then you might need to be running to somebody like Jen every few years or somebody else, um, you know, who isn't in that market and has maybe more of a slower moving and very loyal clientele. It isn't as important for them to maybe refresh as often. So I get it. I think that was, um, I think that point's well made. Yeah. I think what I've been getting a lot out of this, uh, and you you underscored that, Jen, is, wow, there are so many variables and factors that go into this. Um, unless you're somebody who does this all the time, I don't care who you are, you would not really be able to take into consideration everything that needs to be done. It, there's this is not a cook, not a cookie cutter process, particularly if you're an independent operator. It's it's got a lot of moving parts, a lot of variables, and uh, a lot of things to factor in that it's hard to keep track of unless you really know what you're doing. I actually had somebody tell me, and, and I made a note of this because I thought I've got, I got to run it up your flagpole, but I actually had somebody tell me that um, there was something good that came out of the harmongous speed bump uh, that COVID presented to restaurant operators. And that was that it awakened operators to the importance of some parts of their environment that they never paid much attention to, like outdoor areas, uh, curbside pickup, takeout business. And it's made them stand up and realize that, oh no, this is part of my experience. I better run to my design team and say, how can I incorporate uh, curbside takeout and make sure that to-go isn't an afterthought that the bartender's doing. And I guess I really do need to pay attention to my my patio, uh, maybe it really should have some sound and color and lighting to blend in with the inside rather than just, you know, uh, tables and chairs that were thrown outside and flowers that I never really maintained. <laughs> is, yeah. is that something that you see? And is that now something that your design team preaches to clients? Um, you know, most of our clients in the past have been um, very conscientious about their, their patios. We, we have designed quite a few patios along with the interiors, um, but I'm noticing it around town uh, for sure, it, even if not so much within the studio. I mean, I see uh, the most creative patios popping up around Montrose, you know, built out into the parking lot on, on makeshift decks and surrounded by planters. Um, you know, there's just people are really taking advantage of being able to do that. I mean, I was in San Diego and they, they, they blocked off the entire street. Um, and everybody, everybody was able to put a patio in and, and they did. And it changed the whole dynamic. Oh, forgetting the name of the street. It's kind of the main, the main drag there in downtown San Diego. Um, but yeah, it's, it's definitely, um, even in New York, they were shutting down, shutting down whole streets yeah. to allow people to have outdoor dining. So, yeah, it's it's, it's important. I'm curious if if and when COVID you know dies down, if people are gonna still do that. But I mean, Houston is a great city to eat outside, and even when it's not 
people in Houston still do eat outside. I mean, it blows my mind how many people will sit outside in 100 degree, 100% humidity weather in this town. But I don't know why. They just <laughs> are kind of unfazed by it when it comes to eating outside, even before COVID. So I think Houston's a town that's always took its patios pretty seriously um, and, uh, and now even more so. Yeah, I think that just kind of goes to that point that you made so well earlier that your job is really to create an experience um, and uh, the experience does uh, work or it should anyway, work in every inch you know, of their facility. Uh, and so uh, if it took something like this to, to teach some operators that, that they need to incorporate in design um, the, the curbside pickup and the takeout and the online ordering and the outside seating, uh, then I guess that was something that good that came out of it. Yeah, I think that has a silver lining. Well, I think we've, we've really, really enjoyed the time you've given us and the, the pointers on the design process and the do's and don'ts, I think were things that all the listeners needed to make note of. So I really, really appreciate you taking the time and sharing your wisdom and teaching us the things that we need to know about hospitality design today. Thanks. You're so welcome. Thanks for having me. It's fun to dive into this. Thank you, Jen. It's been quite education. Really appreciate it. So everybody, this is Jen Braverman, Jen Design Group, G-I-N Design Group. Look her up. Jen, thanks so much. And thank you everyone for joining us. Hopefully we'll cross paths soon on another Corner Booth. Thank you for joining us on the Corner Booth. We'll be back next Tuesday with more inspiration, insights, and industry best practices to help you engage your team, delight your guests, and grow your business.